Hello and welcome to Who Rules Cyberspace, a new mini-series from Chatham House on the Undercurrents podcast feed. I'm Ben Horton and I'm a communications manager here at Chatham House and also the co-host of the Undercurrents podcast. And I'm Joyce Hackme. I'm a senior researcher with the International Security Programme and the co-editor of the Journal of Cyber Policy. In this series, we'll be exploring the role that states, the private sector and civil society play in protecting cyberspace, in keeping people safe online and helping to achieve the benefits of digital technologies while minimising the threats they pose. We'll be focusing on the UN negotiations around these issues and what they're trying to achieve. Throughout the series, which is going to be taking place all week, we will be speaking to some fascinating experts who work on cyberspace in some capacity. And in this episode, we're going to lay out some of the background to this discussion on cyber governance. So, Joyce, could you maybe just kick us off by explaining what we mean by governance of cyberspace and why it is such an important issue? Yes, sure, Ben. So technological developments are evolving at a speed with no parallel in human history, connecting people around the world, leading to economic and social growth, creating opportunities that, you know, were not simply possible before the Internet and digital technology came along. Mm. And these developments have been contributing to improving people's life in fundamental ways. So these are all great opportunities and there is a bright future and a big potential to do more, including bridging the digital divide and bringing the other half of the world population online so they can also benefit from digital technology. But this potential and amazing opportunities that technological developments allow are constantly under threat, not just from criminal actors, but also state actors. Threats against what we call them the critical national infrastructure sectors, for example, our financial system, our health sector, our defense, water, transport, all of that. Mm -hmm. And these are not hypothetical threats. If you remember, Ben, a few years ago, we had a big cyber attack here in the UK, the WannaCry attack, which hit the national health system and was later attributed to North Korea. Shortly after, there was another big attack, the NotPetya attack, which hit the shipping sector and different kinds of companies around the world and was later attributed to Russia. Mm. And recently, in the context of coronavirus, the German police are currently investigating a homicide following a ransomware attack against a hospital in Dusseldorf, which actually could be the first death caused by a cyber attack. So as technology develops, as cities become even more connected, and as we increase even more our dependence on these technologies, the attacks will become more sophisticated and the stakes will become much higher. So it will no longer be the data or computer systems that we will be worrying about, but also the physical implications of those attacks. So that's why the governance of cyberspace, minimizing the threats and the malicious use of digital technology is such an important issue. And so is finding ways to harness its big potential so it can bring these great benefits to countries and people all around the world. Yeah, thank you so much, Joyce, for that overview. And just to follow on on this question of, of why states are increasingly becoming involved in this conversation, I'm sorry if it's simplistic or basic to say this, but my understanding of the internet is that it's delivered by private companies, right? It's, it's a product that has been monetized and that people make profits out of. And if it's causing problems and it's, it's making people unsafe, then surely those companies should be dealing with that. They should be responsible for keeping their own products safe to use. So why are states now getting involved in this discussion? 
Actually, that is a very good question, Ben. And in fact, is the issue that we are trying to explore in this mini-series. Who rules cyberspace and whose responsibility it is to keep it safe? Mm. As I mentioned earlier, two of the biggest cyber attacks that we have witnessed to date were attributed to states. And states-to-states attacks have been increasing in the last two decades. And actually, a few years ago, NATO has officially declared cyberspace as a warfare domain along land, air, sea, and space, where a severe cyber attack against any of its allies can be considered as an act of war. Mm. So because these kinds of attacks between states go against the objectives of maintaining international stability and security, states had to get involved in finding the solutions. So in 1998, a conversation at the UN started between states for the very first time on the impact on international security of information and communication technologies, ICTs. And the conversation started to revolve around how they can be governed responsibly and how can the harm that could result from the malicious use be limited. But as you rightly said, this is not just the job of states. This is also the job of the private sector. There's a big role for the civil society, for the technical community, the academia, and so on. So it should really be a whole of a society approach. Mm where different actors play their different yet complementary roles. And this is what we wanted to discuss on this podcast. Absolutely. Now, before we talk a bit more about what this series is going to look at, I wondered if we could take a little historical journey. And could you tell us a bit about what has happened since those first conversations in 1998? What approaches have been tried and and who's been leading on this process so far? Sure. So in 1998, the issue was put on the agenda of states, which then led to the establishment of the group of governmental experts, the GGE, which we'll be mentioning quite a lot on this podcast. So the first GGE was established in 2004, and it had a mandate of looking at the threats posed by the use of ICTs in the context of international security and how these threats should be addressed. And since 2004, there has been five iterations of this group with a sixth one that is currently underway. Wow. So in three out of these five iterations, this group, was able to achieve important outcomes. They were able to agree. And what they agreed on are basically, or can be summarized to three main things. Mm. So first, they agreed that the existing international law, and in particular, the Charter of the United Nations, applies to cyberspace. They also agreed on 11 voluntary non-binding norms of responsible state behavior. These are the basically the expectations of what countries should and should not do in cyberspace. And they also recognized the need for confidence-building measures between states and for capacity-building to achieve those agreements. That all sounds quite positive. So what's the problem with this then? Well, is there a problem? What, what are the drawbacks? So, Ben, the issue is while these are very important milestones, in the fifth iteration of the GGE back in 2017, the the, the representatives reached a deadlock and the group could not reach a consensus around a number of issues, including, Mm. for example, how international law applies to cyberspace. But this deadlock is actually representative of of a long-lasting disagreement between key states and their different views of what the internet and cyberspace should look like. So long story short, around a year after, not only there was another GGE after 2017, you know, no consensus, (laughs) but also a new process called the Open-Ended Working Group, which unlike the GGE is open to all UN member states. So where we are now is that we've got two processes, 
the GGE with 25 states only negotiating and deliberating in closed meetings. And then you have the open-ended working group with all 193 member states negotiating an open setup. But these two processes are practically negotiating the same issues. Right. Okay. So it's it's a pretty complex picture. And you mentioned that there's disagreement between states and different visions that lead to the establishment of these two processes. Can you tell us a bit more about these competing visions? Sure. So to put it simply, Ben, there are two visions of the internet and cyberspace that are prevailing and have been prevailing since this all started in the 90s. There's the vision that cyberspace should be open, free and secure. And this is a vision led by countries like the US, UK, EU and other like-minded states. Mm. But you also have the other vision of a sovereign and controlled model of cyberspace, which is primarily led by Russia and China. And because the two models are inherently very different, this has been leading to big tensions Mm. and major disagreements between the two camps around the way forward. So in 2018, after a consensus was not achieved, as we mentioned, uh, both the US and Russia proposed resolutions for what should happen next. The UN suggested a new GGE and Russia, the open-ended working group, and both resolutions passed. And this is how we ended up with two processes practically trying to do the same thing. And do you get a sense of whether either vision is particularly ascendant at the moment? Obviously, we're, we're talking at a time where a lot of commentators are worried about populism and the rise of authoritarian governments around the world. Does it sound like that second model of the more autocratic vision of cyberspace is gaining momentum at the moment or is that being too pessimistic? Well, no, I think that's a a fair question. And I think it is safe to say that more countries are seeing in that model, the controlled model, a certain appeal. Mm. For example, states who have been for so many years controlling their information space very tightly through, for example, censoring speech or controlling their media and limiting freedom of expression was only natural that when the internet and social media platforms came along, that they sought to do the same. So as they are developing their internet policies, as they are developing their internet strategies, they are finding this controlled and sovereign model an appealing model. And the way this model materializes is not just by restrictive laws and regulations. Actually, advanced technology plays um, a very big role through, for example, filtering through undesirable content, identifying dissidents, and so on. Mm. And really... This model allows states to have a tight grip over its information environment. So this model is resonating with many countries and is actually gaining momentum. That's why this conversation is now more important than ever. While there seems to be some pretty intractable and entrenched differences, I guess my question and what we're going to be discussing for the rest of the series is is what other plans are there? What other approaches could there be for breaking this deadlock and who can we see taking the lead on these alternative visions? So the two processes haven't concluded their work yet, and we are yet to see what they will achieve. But we did recently see an interesting proposal from France, supported by, you know, all EU countries, and interestingly, countries like Egypt, Mm -hmm. suggesting a third way through the establishment of something called Programme of Action, which basically is a document that results from an intergovernmental conference. It's not legally binding, but it is actually politically binding. This Programme of Action, POA is often referred to, would combine the work of both the GGE and Open-Ended Working Group and would actually tackle the subjects separately instead of grouping them all together, as it is currently the case. Right. 
and would have concrete discussions around uh, the way forward. So through this program of action, these countries are hoping that they would overcome one of the biggest challenges to these processes, the challenge of reaching a consensus on all issues at the same time. In addition, this initiative, this program of action would not have an end time, but rather establish a permanent conversation on these issues at the UN and therefore overcome another challenge of the ticking clock that the two processes actually have or okay. currently have. Mm. So the countries that suggested this proposal have argued that both GGE and Open-Ended Working Group are creating redundancies. You remember we talked about how they're doing the same thing and can be counterproductive. Therefore, there needs to be a new way to deal with this challenge. Mm. They are now asking that this proposal be included as a recommendation in the final reports of the two processes. So it's an interesting development to keep an eye on and we'll actually see whether it will get the needed support. Mm, really interesting. Now, What we've spoken about so far has been very state-centric. It's all about the high-level international relations of the United Nations processes that are at play. But just to come back to what we really want to focus on in this series, could we talk a bit about the role of other actors in this space? Over this period, what have the private sector and civil society been able to do? Yeah, sure. So there has been actually a number of initiatives, uh, Ben, that were led by the private sector, such as the Tech Accord, the Charter of Trust, and other initiatives like, for example, the Paris Call for Trust and Security in Cyberspace that have not just states, but also civil society, private sector, all of them in, in, in one place. Mm. And other initiatives like, you know, the Global Commission on Stability of Cyberspace, etc., But also non-state actors, you know, the civil society, private sector, etc., have been able to input into the UN processes as much as these processes allow. The GGE, as we mentioned, is a closed group where conversations are held in a closed setup. But for example, the open-ended working group allows for some input from non-state actors. For example, Chatham House, we took part in an open-ended working group meeting that was organized last year at the UN in, in New York. But these processes, as you rightly said, are very much state-centric because traditionally issues that impact international security are decided upon by states. Of course. But when it comes to digital technology, there are other roles that the private sector and civil society play that simply cannot be replaced by states. They do complement what states do, as we will explore in this series. But what I think is missing is enough recognition on the part of several states of this important role, this complementary role. Mm. Only a few countries advocate for that openly, and there is room for much more. So we can really see what we call the multi-stakeholder engagement and actually have and reach multi-stakeholder solutions. Exciting. Well, let's talk a bit about the rest of the series now. So... Each day this week, as we're talking now in early November 2020, we will be publishing every day a new episode. And Joyce, I wondered if you could tell our listeners about why we're doing this series and how we structured it so that they know what's coming next. Of course. So this series, Ben, is part of a larger program that my department, the International Security Program here at Chatham House, is implementing called a Cyberspace for All. And as the name suggests, what we're trying to do with this project is have an inclusive approach to cyber uh, governance. We're trying to support new countries who have come into these negotiations uh, recently, navigate the intricacies of these negotiations. These processes, Ben, are not the only place where conversations around the use of digital technology are happening. 
In fact, a new process will start soon looking at cybercrime issues. There are other processes looking at digital technology and sustainable development and so on. So if you're a developing country, you have not been part of these conversations, making a meaningful and informed contribution can actually be quite challenging because of a number of reasons, including lack of resources, complexity of the issue, trying to be in all uh, rooms and every negotiation. Mm. So we're really trying to help them unpack this issue. So we're doing regional workshops, we're developing in-depth policy analysis and so on. But we also wanted to appeal to the regular citizen, right, to most of us who use digital technology in many aspects of our lives. Because, you know, what end up happening in these forums, what what states end up deciding on will have a big impact on all of us. So we really need to be engaged and informed and we need to create more awareness on the importance of the issue and on the different roles that different actors play. So we're doing this podcast and a series of video explainers around the key issues to help with that. So the way we structured the series is by having, other than this episode, four different episodes. We start with episode two, talking to state representatives from South Africa and the Netherlands. In episode three, we speak to the private sector, to a big tech company, but also we get the perspective of non-tech big companies. In episode four, we speak to two civil society representatives, one guest closely following the UN processes in New York and the other guest from India representing some views from the global south. And finally, in episode five, we speak to one of the first cyber diplomats who is now working with uh, civil society and another guest who is currently a UN diplomat supporting the two UN processes, the Open-Ended Working Group and the GG. Mm-hmm. So as you can see, Ben, what we try to do as much as possible is to bring the different perspectives so we can have a rounded conversation around the issue. Absolutely. And it's going to be so interesting to explore the many strands to this conversation throughout the rest of the week. But before we go on to our next episodes, Joyce, I wonder if I could just ask you about your thoughts on these developments. Thinking about all the processes we've discussed in this conversation and the long history now of international negotiation on this issue, are you optimistic that change can come? Well, I think that's a very good question. And I think it is quite easy not to be optimistic. (laughs) But in spite of all these challenges that we talked about and, you know, the divergent views that are not really converging, I really think there is at least a good momentum going on a real investment from some states and non-state actors to keep the conversation going and to actually make progress. And if we look at where we are now compared to where we were 20 years ago, I think there's really a good progress that has been achieved. Is it enough? No. Is the problem getting more complex and the stakes getting higher? Yes. (laughs) But I think a good attitude towards this issue is by focusing on you know, what is often referred to in this conversation as the aki, on what has been agreed on so far, and really try to build on this agreement. But I think what's really important is for both states and non-state actors to think outside the box about solutions that could have a real impact. Well, that's a more positive note than I expected as <laughs> at the end of 2020, <laughs> <laughs> as, as we expected here. So, so it's lovely that we can have a, a bit of optimism for the rest of this series. And it's a really exciting lineup of guests. So regular Undercurrents listeners, I hope that you enjoy the rest of this week. As I said, there will be a new episode every day and five episodes in total. And then we'll be returning to our 
regular programming, as it were. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe to the Undercurrents feed on whichever podcast app you use. And if you enjoyed this series or any of our other episodes, we would love it if you left us a review because it makes it easier for other people to find us, which is great. If you would like to hear about more of the work that Joyce and the team in the International Security Programme are doing, you can follow them on Twitter at Chatham House ISR. Joyce, just want to say before we sign off, it's lovely to be doing this project with you and I'm very excited that we're bringing this to Undercurrents. So thank you very much for this opening conversation. Thank you, Ben. I'm really excited to be doing this together. That's it for now. <laughs>